Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hi, this is Ilona Thompson with Palate Exposure. I'm here on a very bright, sunny day on Howl Mountain, spectacular views and company. I'm here with Brian Brakesman and Heather Griffin, their brother and sister team, co-proprietors of Summit Lake Vineyards. I had a chance to walk a vineyard with them this morning and they have some old wines that really touched my heart and we're gonna talk all about it. Um, there's quite a bit of history here. I understand that your dad was the one that acquired the property and started planting in the 70s? That is correct. Yeah, so tell us about it. So my dad um, graduated with a degree in engineering uh, in 19, late 1970. Um, and during his senior year of college, um, started exploring wines. Mm. And um, he and my mom were living on a horse boarding ranch down in San Jose. Uh, that butted up against some old vineyards mm -hmm. down there, some Zinfandel vines. And he got to know the gentleman that owned um, the property. Um, and my dad took it upon himself to confiscate a garbage can full of grapes. <laughs> Made his first batch of wine in a garbage can in his kitchen in San Jose and uh, fell in love with the, the process and um, decided to start looking for prime valley floor property oh. and um, so at the time he was helping a friend of ours uh, build a house out at Point Reyes station on the coast Very beautiful. Um, but he would take the long way through the valley and built a relationship with a real estate agent here and the guy called him one day and said so I've got a piece of property up in Angwin mm -hmm. that's got some old pre-prohibition vines on it and my dad said well Where's Anglin? Where's Anglin? <laughs> <laughs> Even to today, people ask, where's oh, yeah. Anglin? Yeah, absolutely. Familiar with Howe Mountain, but not the town of Anglin. Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty remote. It is. Yeah, it feels like a different world. And so. it's in Napa Valley, which is world famous, of course, mm -hmm. with a cultural region. And you're not that far off Silverado Trail. Like people drive up and down a lot when yeah. they come here to visit. but. It's a whole other world. It is definitely a whole other world. Yeah, so and he... back in 71, I can only imagine, <laughs> before we it were born. A, it was still. a little more remote in the, uh, in the early 70s, but... Yeah. Yeah, so he uh, met the real estate guy and came up here and um, walked the property with this guy, figured out that the whole property had really been abandoned for many years. Really? Um, the the vines that the gentleman had spoken of were completely overground and sure. untended for 30 to 40 years. And wow. there were people that lived in the house that weren't really supposed to be on the property, but they were oh. here. <laughs> um, but I think he's, he saw the potential of and um, ended up purchasing the property. This house is from 1897, I understand, which yeah. is remarkable. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a piece of history. Yeah. And the original gentleman that farmed was an Italian gentleman, Mario Ferrazzi. Yeah. So he built this house. Uh, he made wine in the basement. There's a pretty substantial basement, about one-third the size of the house and a footprint underneath. Amazing. Where Dad actually started making the wines. I was going to say, he probably picked 
right up. Or... Picked it right up and started <laughs> crushing grapes on the back pad and pump them down through that small little door to get them underneath the house. There's your gravity flow facility right exactly. there. Exactly. <laughs> One of the original. <laughs> as authentic as it gets. Yeah, yep. for sure. Yep. So you grew up watching your dads tend to the vineyards and make wine. What yeah. was that like? Uh, I think it's, I mean, for me, looking back, it's remarkable now. Yeah. Growing up in it, you don't know any different. Sure. You know, that's what everybody's parents did in the valley. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody either had vineyards or they had wineries or, you know, everybody had wine at the dinner table. And mm-hmm. um, it was very common. You know, and we, I mean, in elementary school and... Well, not everybody's parents were making wine because this is a Seventh Adventist community. Well, up here. So, you know, (laughs) up here in England. England, you just recently allowed coffee sales, right? Yeah, exactly. That was a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah, you fast forward now, this wine business has done a lot for the community. And I think the community embraces the, the wine business. But when we were growing up, I mean, we were heathens. I mean, we were, we, we were, our mom smoked and we made wine. And I just remember, you know, going to school with some of the Adventist parents and just like not being the most popular family, you know, I mean, obviously there's wine producers up here and that's who we're all friends with. We were friends with, (laughs) but you know, it was, it was different times. But we were talking another world, and it's almost like a subworld of another world. Here's an upper right. valley where wine is supposed to be just context. Right. And you were in this kind of an interesting enclave that was completely different mentality. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what you were surrounded by in your immediate. So. It's definitely, you know, it was upcoming, the wine business, but yeah. it was not embraced. Huh. Up here in Angwin. That's so interesting. Yeah. In Angwin, it definitely wasn't, but, you know, the, the valley was definitely, yeah. you know, it was starting to kind of come back to life. You know, there was a thriving industry here before in the 1800s and, yeah. you know, pre-prohibition. And of course. It got sleepy for a little while and then, you know, 60s yeah, and 70s setback. really started mm-hmm. coming back. Yeah, and Hell Mountain, how exciting is it to grow grapes on Hell Mountain? Yeah. It's one yeah. of the most important AVAs, of course, but, you know, we're looking at soils this morning. They're just so rich looking. So even visually, you get a clue, even mm-hmm. if you're not like a white nerd. Yeah. Um, so it's a <laughs> it's very a, special place. If you, the, the environment up here is stunning. Mm-hmm. And when you see a grapevine growing in it, you immediately think that works, mm-hmm. that fits. Yes. And it does, it really does. I mean, we have such a unique situation up here, distinctive, different, um, you know, that I think is uh, just producing incredible wines. Mm-hmm. So the hallmark to me of the ABA is age worthiness. If you're into wine at all, at some point you've come across Randy Dunn's wines, for example, we talked about that earlier, mm-hmm. and they are huge. Mm-hmm. I was joking that they would outlive me, and it's not really such oh, a joke. It's, it's, it's the prob- truth. It's probably true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that's saying a lot right there. The fact that this particular area can produce wines that are sometimes and oftentimes a delicious unrelease you know they have everything you want in a great bottle of wine but then you can also lay it down should, mm-hmm. should you choose to for decades yeah and i think well, it's it's really it's a magic soil mm-hmm. up here it really mm-hmm. you have so much complexity and minerality and structure that comes from growing conditions up here mm-hmm. um but the wines aren't like super monstrous, big, mm-hmm. 
you know, overpowering wines. Mm -hmm. There's this amazing balance and complexity and this ability to, like you said, lay it down or mm -hmm. drink it now. It's just, it's, and they just, they continue to age and grow and develop and it's, they're really phenomenal. Absolutely. And the other, you know, salient point about how mountain to me in, in wine sense is texture. And there's a silky, velvety quality to those wines. Mm -hmm. And it's almost counterintuitive because they are sizable, mm -hmm. but they're also very elegant at the same time. Yeah. Which is that balance that everybody strives for mm -hmm. in the wine world. Yeah. You know, a lot of that, you know, if you want to get into the technical side of why some of these wines are as big and as rich as they are, is uh -huh. that we're warmer up here. Oh. So one of the aspects with um, Howl Mountain is that, you know, typically down in the valley floor, we get a, a fog that comes in in the summer Makes sense. and keeps the valley cool. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the beautiful things about Napa Valley is that we have great hang time. We get this beautiful fog layer that comes in. But when that fog layer comes in, it pushes that warm inversion layer up to Howl Mountain. Ah. So we're typically above the fog and our evenings up here on average, I would say about 10 degrees warmer. That's so interesting. So it allows the tannin structure to kind of elongate and... It's, it's, um, so malic acid yeah. is uh, transpired in cold evenings. Got it. So typically our malate levels are higher. And in a fermentation, when you convert that malate acid to lactic acid, lactic, which is, lactic is a heavier, fatter, mm -hmm. richer acid, um, really contributes to that mouthfeel and that lushness that you were referring to before. Yeah, yeah. no, that makes sense. And... The wines tend to have really long finishes as well, so to me a wine should be a complete story. In, in the media world we focus a lot in our tasting notes on the aromatics and of course the longevity and the length of the finish which are super important, but there's also that middle part right. of that story and that texture, that mouthfeel. It's got to be like a bell curve, you know, when, when I'm tasting wines I think of a bell curve, you know, you have mm -hmm. a, an entry. And then how big and wide is that bell and how mm -hmm. high does that bell go? Mm -hmm. And then hopefully on the other side of the bell, it is, you can stretch it out for as long as you can. I love I mean, that. The longer the finish, the more you're going to remember. And, you know, I always say that I've done my job from a winemaking standpoint. If you take a sip of wine, yeah. you don't put that glass back down. Ooh, I love that. You have another sip. Yes. You want to have that another sip. It, you know, it's fired something in your brain that you want to taste it again. That's wonderful. So you guys obviously are gathering that we have a winemaker <laughs> on our hands. Um, you do all the work. You do all the vineyard work and cellar work. No, I do some of the vineyard work. Some of the vineyard work. work. My dad still does um, the majority of the vineyard work. That's Bob, right? That's Bob. That's Bob. Mm -hmm. um, founder, uh, you know, 75 years old, still going strong. Uh, an amazing work ethic. Um, the guy can fix anything which is an incredible uh, asset to us, you know, because things are always breaking on a ranch. <laughs> um, none of us want to fix those things, and Dad always jumps in and gets it done. It's such um, a working ranch, by the way. Absolutely. Oh, it's a working ranch. <laughs> yeah. We're completely family-run and operated, yeah. so we have no employees. Mm -hmm. um, my sister Heather does the sales and marketing and mm -hmm. all the all the tastings. Um, I'll jump in on tastings if she can't cover them. Yep. Um, I do all the winemaking. And then dad does the uh, the farming, so we... So this is like a quintessential poster child for Napa Valley. So if you guys are in Napa, if you want a, that authentic experience, this is it. It surrounds you. It's like Star Wars surrounds us and binds us, right? Like the energy. <laughs> um, 
but truthfully, you feel so real here. You know, it's, like I said, a working ranch. You guys are available. You actually do your own tastings, which is remarkable considering how busy you are. Mm -hmm. So this is quite this is quite an opportunity for somebody that really wants to know the authentic side of the valley. Yeah, I think, I think people really value the fact that they get to sit down with family members. Mm -hmm. um, but the other side of that, too, is it's valuable for us mm. because we get to share what we do and we love what we do. You know, That's so why not be able you. to sit down and actually share it with, you know, and it's a it's an amazing reminder for us as well why we do it because we get to share, you know. They're all babies, <laughs> you know, every vintage is a, is a new, you know, kid that we get to put out in the world and share with people and introduce and, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting, we've been referred to as uh, deliberately rustic yeah. up here and it's, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but there's no facade. You know, there's, there's quite often there's, um, there's beautiful wineries in this valley that are built up with. Italian stone and what have you, but mm -hmm. up here, I mean, the rocks that are surrounding these gardens are pulled from the field. You know, um, this table that we're sitting at is an original redwood tank that held water on the property for God knows how long. Well, it's an old redwood fermenter that came out of another facility that was abandoned up here in the 70s. You know, there's a sort of transference. Um, that happens when you're so close, you've touched this plant so many times, you've touched that barrel so many times. Um, to me, the whole point of falling in love with wine is that it teaches you how to connect to yourself. It's a great facilitator. And people that create it in the first place are so intimately involved in it. And you are, again, this great example of all of that because it's not down to third parties, it's not outsourced. And there's that magic. And yes, the wines are delicious and we'll get into all of that later. Mm -hmm. But really, like I said, the most important thing is that experiential part. When, you know, I can sit across the table from you and look in your eyes and I know how much you've invested. Mm -hmm. And I know part of it is what I will taste eventually mm -hmm. because there's so much good oil here. It's just overflowing. And you can't help but be affected by that. Right. So it's, you guys, it's well worth the trip. If you're in Napa, you got to show up here because I am so impacted. And I come to the valley, I don't know, almost every day it feels like. <laughs> but I still feel as if this is the first time in the sense that it's such a strong connection mm -hmm. that you experience. It's like nothing else. Mm -hmm. Well, we, I mean, we enjoy spending time with people as well, but we also understand that that connection that's built between us and our customers and soon-to-be friends and people that are going to enjoy our wines is what's going to carry us through. Yeah. You know, um, the bottling statement that our family put on the 1971 label was produced for the friends and family of Summit Lake Vineyards and Winery. And that's still on there, and it's true. It's really true. No, and you, and you live it. You are the living legacy. Mm -hmm. It's that intentionality. When somebody, like you described, your dad saw the potential of this abandoned place, but it was so beautiful mm -hmm. that he obviously fell in love with it. And he 
transfer that love onto you and I can see it. The way that you speak about it, the way that you relate to it, it's, to me, that is magic. Well, it's funny. He, he calls it dumb luck. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think that you now fast forward almost 50 years. Yeah. It's a long time. Which is crazy. Next year's 50 years. 50 years. years. He is so thankful to be up here. Yeah. And, I mean, his original intent was to get some of the valley floor, but now that he's been up here and he's seen the development that's happened down on the valley and the traffic and yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful place, but nonetheless, it's a different world than it was in 1971. Yeah. Um, he's just very thankful to be up here. No, I can see that. Again, we keep coming back to this point that it's so close yet so far away. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're in your own world. And that's so special because the rest of the world tends to be chaotic and often unkind and you feel kind of protected here almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely have our own little little bubble up here. Yes. So, And it is, like you said, it's 20 to 30 minutes off of the the valley floor. It's, you know, it's very accessible, yeah. It's an adventure. It is. But we've also got, you know, all these amazing neighbors around us as well so you can spend the whole day up here Absolutely. for several days. <laughs> no, there's so much good wine here. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so much camaraderie too. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing about the Valley that I always talk about is the fact that there's that sense of kinship, communal, information sharing. It's not competitive. You all make wine, but they're all different. Right. We all benefit from each other's successes and relationships and referrals. And, you know, um, we've got friends that make great wine that, you know, if. if somebody needs a, another spot to go taste to fill their afternoon we've got plenty of people that are right down the road or up the road that they can go and see and and enjoy really really nice wines absolutely no i don't think that i've ever had a mediocre wine from hot mountain i really it's can't think of one very difficult to find a bad wine off of the cell yeah yeah that's pretty amazing in that of itself definitely so Tell us about your winemaking a bit. I know you have some, you grew up watching your dad make wine, so you learned so much on the job, and you have some formal education pieces, but what I want to hear about the most is kind of your philosophy, your point of view. Well, I think that, you know, winemaking, simply put, is just the culmination of a lot of little things that are done right. Oh. Um, you know, there's obviously time spent in the vineyard you know we deal with good fruit so that makes my job a lot easier mm -hmm. um, but not every vintage is a stellar vintage so um, which is which is fine for me because yeah. that's, there's some challenges every single year every you know you're not cooking bread you're actually making wine there's no recipe that, mm -hmm. we're, that we're following um, you know those attentions to detail in the winery I think is where Heather refers to me as anal, but um, I like things clean. I like things done on time. I like things fresh. My type, my type A brother. Um, it's really important. It's, it's very important. From it's winemaking, very important. it's paramount from a winemaking mm -hmm. perspective. Um, so I, I think that I focus on taking care of anything that is negative first. So mm. if I have any wine that I'm not 100% happy with, how can I make it better? Um, I'll pick lots um, in the vineyard you know separately and we keep the lots separate in the winery mm -hmm. and all, intensive, of course. it's more rackings it's more toppings it's mm -hmm. more breakdown material yeah it's more 
money essentially because it's more analysis we're running Um, but at the end of the day you know if I can call out what I don't think is good and and let the cream rise to the top if you will and uh, blend wines um, with stellar lots it just is um, is what we do and it's 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 fun it's beautiful you definitely want a perfectionist in your winemaker because that makes for a much better result Sounds like, and I'm never happy. (laughs) Not to be a perfectionist, but um, I think that that's a fine thing. But I'm always my I'm my own worst critic, and that's um, that's either near the here nor there. It's just my personality, right? I just want um, I always find something that I think I could have done a little bit better on, but maybe that's. That's why the lines are the way they are. Yeah, talked about earlier about Mm -hmm. learning from your. You know, learning mm-hmm. from your own mistakes. And One of the winemakers, in answer to my question of when are you finally happy with the blend, he's like, well, when my bottling truck is in the driveway, I have to be happy. Right. So <laughs> the work never really ends. Otherwise, right. you'd still be blending. It sounds like well, you can relate to that. Um, we've got a bottling truck coming in three weeks. I've visited these blends um, probably four times now mm. um, and they're assembled but I'm, I'm going to visit them again tomorrow mm-hmm. um, and again next week mm-hmm. and um, probably again the night before oh I bet you know probably just kind of reassuring yes. <laughs> myself because once that wine's in the bottle I mean obviously you're you you're know, committed you're, you're committed you know you're it's a it's a scary day because you know um your last chance to make a mistake and there's always something that goes wrong with bottling but um, there's no such thing as a perfect bottling run Um, but yeah I mean once the set corks in the bottle it's done so you mentioned vintage variants which I think is an important subject to discuss Um, I think culturally we're kind of wedded to we want the best we want everything to be perfect right that's kind of not the point every vintage has its own unique characteristics Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it and embracing it, I think, is what makes for a great experience. Um, you know, 2011 was something we chatted about earlier that was an outlier for the Valley. Mm-hmm. But some, I would make an argument some of the best wines were made in that vintage. Heather referred to it as a winemaker's vintage, which I heartily agree with. Mm-hmm. How was 2011 for you? I thought it was, um, you know, it was a little bit of a challenge from a growing standpoint. Um, the fruit came in. It wasn't as ripe as normal. You know, normally we we bring fruit in, but um, you know, you fast forward. Now we're drinking the wines, and they're absolutely beautiful. And yeah. we're, when we're, you know, I've done a couple comparative tastings with other Howe Mountain mm-hmm. producers, 2011 vintage, and uh, they they did a, a good job as well. Um, so yeah, you know, like we said, every every vintage is different. Um, we can't um, think that every single you know vintage we're going to get this exorbitantly ripe fruit, and mm-hmm. we can let it hang and and get these nice ripe characteristics that producers seem to seem to love. But you know, it was a little bit less ripe. It was higher in acid. It's mm-hmm. aging beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of structure. Lots of you know structure. Um, yeah, so it, it turned out really well. So if you guys are listening, there's a helpful tip in here for you. Look for 11s because they tend to, because 
you know, the press didn't love the vintage, and there was all this negative characteristic design because it was a cool vintage and had some weather events and such like that um, towards the end of the growing season and harvest. So they tend to be less expensive for that mm -hmm. reason, and you would be so surprised how well rewarded you will be for right. seeking them out. And of course, 12 was very loved and for good reason. It was mm -hmm. a fruit forward, very generous vintage, and 13 was near perfect. And then, you know, 14 and 15s are fantastic as well. Just 15 drought years, so a bit hotter. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the 16, and we have to talk about the 17 because it's an elephant in the room. A lot of consumers are wondering, you know, the fire year, as it's been labeled. And I think we need to kind of demystify it a bit and find out what is 2017 about on Hollow Mountain and for you specifically. Well, so I'm going to start this by saying I don't think that there should be secrets in the wine business. Absolutely. I think as producers, um, we should understand that our consumers are educated. Um, sometimes as press, things can be exaggerated. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, we just, we'll just deal with that. 2017, there were some fires. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody's concern, obviously, is smoke tank. Uh, we had, I think it was the most polluted air in the world for 12 days up here. It was atrocious. Mm. In, in the Bay Area, entire Bay Area. Yeah, so yeah. Um, we did pick our fruit and uh, there were uh, some smoke taint issues with, with the fruit. Mm -hmm. um, the levels were low, okay. um, but with smoke taint, um, the forethogwanicol levels uh, typically below three to four uh, parts per million, I believe, mm -hmm. um, are detectable by most people. And that's right where our levels were. And um, I made the fruit. Mm -hmm. I managed our fermentations differently. So I, I kept uh, our skin contact and fermentations, um, I basically shortened our fermentations, so the skin to juice contact time was mm -hmm. less. Um, so I'm basically not, hopefully not extracting any more of that smoke taint. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, once once your fermentation is complete, those levels are, are basically either free or they're bound. Mm -hmm. And there's actually processes now that remove it. Yeah. And uh, I took a portion of the wine and I had it filtered and remove those levels and then put it back into the main lot and now the the wine's beautiful. I have no qualms with the with the 17. I think it's going to be um, a really really nice vintage. I'm bottling it in 3 weeks. I'm very happy with it. I tasted a bunch at the Premier Napa Valley which is of course is a kind of a trade showcase. There's a lot of um, examples of 16s and 17s and 17s were showing so well. <laughs> and another tidbit that you guys might be interested in um, I heard that it's virtually indiscernible, the difference between slight smoke taint and a heavily toasted barrel? It's the same compound. <laughs> right, so um, you have to run your analysis prior to barreling down because once you're in barrel, that analysis is going to be skewed by the toasted wood. Yeah. Those compounds, that's, that's, that's toasted wood. It's just like a fire, right? It's the yeah. same, same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so what are you measuring once you're in barrel? So you have to be very careful with that. So we, we had all those baseline numbers 
and even prior going to barrel it was so faint mm -hmm. that it didn't concern me you know it's again every every year is different um unfortunately these are you know normally deal with weather challenges um maybe a little bit of insect pressure but um this is this is kind of a new frontier when it yeah. comes to um fires california and yeah. uh those challenges that that were posed but um yeah no 2017 i'm, I'm confident will be received very well so as a consumer you just gave me a lot of confidence when mr perfectionist says i'm not concerned my ears pop up it's like that's all i need to know right and so you guys whatever you do don't don't listen to the alarmist about 2017 don't pass on a vintage it, trust you your know. palate yeah um and try it yeah you know and Just i i can i can damn near guarantee you're not going to be picking any of it up you know you'll get beautiful wood and oak uh, attributes but none of the the smoke quote-unquote taint yeah. issues yeah. so you critical thinker if you think for yourself you'll be well rewarded because those that don't will maybe pass on it and there'll be again, again bargains just like in 2011 so there's a buying opportunity there for sure um your vineyards are absolutely magnificent they're asleep right now but beautiful nevertheless waking some, up. <laughs> yes some old vines some of the vines on your property are how old the oldest blocks um, well, the oldest block is the block that my dad planted in 1973, um, wow. and that's our, our base Still blend for our cab yeah. every year. Yeah. So how long is it going to stick around, do <coughs> you think, in your estimates? Oh, if, if I don't, thing, you I know, know, it's, it's, it's funny, question, that's but. one of those, well, it's not, it's, it's the family, it's the ongoing debate, yeah. right? So, I mean, you just walked through the vineyards with us, and it's kind of hard to look at a block of vines that are, you know, big tangled old vines that produce very little fruit exactly but the it's fruit's yields. beautiful and yeah. it's magnificent but yeah. it's low yields yeah so it's it's hard. one of those you know it's like do you take them out do you leave them with the emotional attachment i mean it, i just messed the vine and i was already petting ridiculous. it yes. yeah <laughs> so that's our that's the oldest block and then we've got two acres that were planted um in the mid 70s of zinfandel yeah that came from the budwood that was originally planted, the pre-prohibitions in yeah. barns that were Stark, here on the yeah. property. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really special. Yeah. Um, and then you replanted some of the pieces, right? Yeah, so originally uh, we had the pre-prohibitions in vines that were planted. So mm -hmm. that was the first two years my folks took to clean everything out. Sure. 73 we planted that acre of Cabernet mm -hmm. um, and then it took them about eight to ten years to plant the rest of the property it mm -hmm. is in using the budwood from the the old vines um, and then late 80s early 90s we had some phylloxera mm -hmm. that went through the vineyard like most people in the valley um, and everything that we'd put in on French rootstock clones needed to be replaced yeah um so and that process took us you know another eight to ten years because we didn't want to pull everything at the same time of course when we couldn't afford it yeah um you know and phlox is a very slow moving insect in the soil it i have such a terrible visual <laughs> i went to a museum of phylloxera in spain that was yeah. a big mistake because now they have this giant bug that's like now in my brain every time so oh, just right. phylloxera <laughs> i can actually see that huge sculpture 
Yeah, which is a little, yeah, it's not what it is. It's this little tiny microscopic bug that yeah. eats, eats the roots. It's so but, destructive. Yeah, so, I mean, we've kind of got, we have a very mixed age group on the property. We have the stuff that was planted in 73, and we've got some babies that were just budded over a couple years ago, so. So, for those that don't know, for Vigna to come into production, that's four to five years, right? Four up here on Hall Mountain, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Typically so five up here on Typically five. five years. Okay. Yeah. So economically speaking, not not a great proposition. And when the vineyard is young, of course, you know, just like a young person, you need to mature, you need to get to know what it's producing. So it's a learning curve, right? It is. So it's definitely patience. I think it's important for people to realize, though, that plant replanting is a good thing, in mm -hmm. the sense that yes, it's very expensive, but you're putting clean plant material on the ground. Yeah. So less virus. Mm -hmm. uh, less susceptibility to rootstock and leaf roll and all of these other problems that we can potentially deal with up here. Um, and hopefully better fruit. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, it's, it's expensive, like I said, but at the end of the day, hopefully you're getting better fruit out of these vines because they're cleaner plant, it's cleaner plant material. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're mostly in a red wine country, right? I mean, Cab really loves it here. Mm -hmm. And Petit Syrah and Zinfandel, of course, like you described, you make five wines? We make six on six occasion. Okay. Yeah, so our Zinfandel, we've kind of stuck to our guns because that was what's originally planted on the property Great. and the varietal that my dad fell in love with. Yes. Um, so our largest production is still actually going into our Zin. Mm -hmm. um, and then we do um, 200 to 300 cases of Cabernet. Very nice, that acre. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we've got. Uh, just about a half an acre of Petite Syrah. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a Petite Syrah label. And it's intense, I can't wait to try it's it. It's amazing. A um, little bit of Zinfandel port mm. on the ears. We can get our uh, vines to hang on long enough to produce it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we do our Rosé, which is a um, blend of Zin and Cab. Ambitious. So we started That's that one in 2006, too. I think was our first mm -hmm. vintage. Wow. Um, and all of the wines outside of our Zin are named for my parents' granddaughters. Oh, that's so sweet. So they ended up with four granddaughters. I had my two girls, and then both my brothers had daughters first. Mm -hmm. And then they both had sons second. Interesting. Um, so the boys are now old enough to realize that they didn't have a wine named for them. Uh-oh. So we actually, 2014, we did a boys' blend for the boys. <laughs> that's crazy. So, and we just redid that um, blend, kind of modified the grapes that went into it, but that's our... Uh, this is the original label. So it's a retro label, if you will. Clean looking, we did, yeah. a, did a throwback label for the boys, I love boys that. blend. Yeah. So a little homage to my dad and to, to the boys on the property. So it's a blend of the Cabernets and Fendel and the Petite Syrah that we grew up here. I love that continuity, and you definitely want to get them attached as much as possible because this is a family affair. This oh, yeah. is gonna we're, we're sucking all the kids. Yeah, <laughs> smart, good strategy. Well, they're they're starting to need a little money after school and asking for work, so they'll, they'll come up here and do a little bit of work, just like we did when we were growing up. Although we did way more work yeah. than they're doing now. But it's one of the saddest things that I run across occasionally when the family legacy stops with the next generation because for whatever reason it's so important to preserve this it sounds like in your case it's going to keep going we're that's exactly um our intent um 
you know, our, our succession planning is in motion. Yeah. Um, you know, we are, we actually have a brother, Danny, mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, he works in St. Helena, but he's, he's involved up here as well. Sure. Um, so how do you, how do you take a, a piece of property that, you know, was purchased for nothing back in 1971 and obviously land values up here in Howe Mountain have increased exorbitantly over the 50 years that dad's been here and pass it to the next generation. That's a dilemma for sure, financially yeah. speaking. Cause yeah, I mean, there's it's like 1% of family farms, yeah. literally across this country, yeah. um, go to the next generation. So um, that's what we're working on as a family is, is building a business that um, can sustain that for mm -hmm. the next generation, so. And it's so important, family-owned businesses in general. Mm -hmm. That's the backbone of this country, and agriculture in particular. I mean, I know that there's a lot of romance and frowning wine and such like that, and there's really not enough awareness um, of the fact that this is agriculture first, and it's agriculture second. Farming first. Yes, yeah. and we all benefit from that, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, so mm -hmm. it's super important that it gets preserved. And passed on. Yeah, I think one point I'd like to make though is that the the lifestyle that we live up here is a beautiful place. It is a lot of work, but when it comes to those important aspects of, of passing it on to the next generation, taking care of your land, um, being able to have the time to spend with family and friends and spending time in your garden, raising your own animals, um, showing your children what mm -hmm. a couple, you know an hour in the vineyard is, right? Yeah. You know, if you want to work here, here's ten bucks an hour. You know, I'll show you what an hour is. You know, yeah. it's a long hour for a twelve-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, without your phone in your hand. Yeah, without your phone <laughs> yeah. in your hand. You know, um, yeah. I mean, all those values are, are so important. important. No, I think it's they're actually life-saving. From the philosophical standpoint, we're talking a little bit off mic about where kind of this next generation is going because of all the devices and AI and all the temptations. And unfortunately, uh, what falls short is empathy. And that is what defines us as humans. Otherwise, you know, that's sociopath territory. We don't want to go there. Right. Um, this teaches you how to be, you know, the best human you can be. And to my taste, there's never enough of it, but certainly the fact that your children are growing up just like you have, seeing firsthand what hard work is, mm -hmm. what it's like to, you know, touch another life, you know. And the importance of giving back. I mean, yeah. Heather gives back, I mean, an amazing amount with 4-H and, and everything wow. else that she does uh, with... It keeps me sane. Yeah. It's the, it's the balance. <laughs> That's, you know... Napa Valley, again, has so many faces and so many misconceptions about it. Yes, there's a lot of wealth. Yes, it's beautiful. But my version of Napa is all about the heart mm -hmm. and giving back. What's well, amazing, I mean, we live in a very genuine and generous community. You know, people people understand that it's it's farming first and you have to do that with other people mm -hmm. you support each other and you communicate and um, and it's a generous I mean everybody takes care of other people up here you know and I that. think that's one of the mm -hmm. the most amazing things about where we live you yeah. know whether it's our neighbor across the street or the neighbor you know down the road in Napa yeah um, you know you can call anybody if you need anything and they're there in 10 minutes 
you know, it's it's That's a, quite something. It's an amazing community that we live in. The world got to see a glimpse of it. Glimpse of it, excuse me, during the fires. You know, there's so many stories. I mean, yes, it's a devastating event, of course. But there's so many heartwarming stories that came out of it. And a lot of it is what you're describing, neighbors helping neighbors, putting right. other people first right. before themselves. And that type of stuff is, you know, what makes you hopeful about our future as humanity. You certainly hear a lot about the other stuff and how we basically making sure we're going to get extinct. <laughs> we get in our own way so well, so well trained at that. But it's the other way that shows up when you least expect it and when the most dramatic things happen mm -hmm. that you know people find out what they're made of what their neighbors are made of and it's it's a very hopeful message to me mm -hmm. so your guys's job is to come here and to see for yourselves i promise it will make you feel better about the world and yourself thank you so much and um i cannot wait to taste the wine so we're not quite finished yet that's oh, our good. next agenda yep. mean, meanwhile i just want to thank you for really showing me your world and opening your hearts and being so transparent. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming out. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.